Hello, welcome to the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset, and that is Doctor Scott, the paleontologist. Now I wish. Did you ever? You, you don't know that reference. <laughs> hey, how dare come you? On, how dare you? How dare You're, you? Come on, give us some dinosaur facts. Dinosaur train. I. How how do you even know that? Come on, Scott. This is America. I. <laughs> how I do I how do I not know about Dr. Scott the paleontologist? Do you actually know about Dr. Scott the paleontologist? Yeah, I do know about right. Dr. Scott the paleontologist. I got informed by the um McDevitt family. Uh, you know he's uh, a paleontologist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Few people know that. Really? Cuz it's a national show. It's it's from a children's show on PBS Kids called Dinosaur Train. <laughs> Because I mean, Scott, it's, the paleontologist, is here. He's a local. No. Yeah, we hang out. We have lunch every week. <laughs> no, we don't. we don't. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to the podcast. This is the Word on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys. We are. I already said tra- that, and this Did is Doctor Scott, the paleontologist. Well, you introduced our names. Did you say the name of the podcast? Yeah, man. Did you give all the credits. Did yeah. You, did you say the producer and the music at the beginning. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. It is still the twentieth Sunday of Ordinary Time, though. Right. And um, should we jump in? Shall Dude, we, Father Peter? 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time, August 16th, 2020. It's very specific, <laughs> yes. Our first reading is um, from Isaiah 56, uh, verses 1, jumping all the way to verse 6 to 7. Leaping, if you will. Yeah, Our, I just try to imitate you, the way you say it. Do I you do know that, that, you know, that like, you, did you feel that inside? Yeah, it the, didn't. It, it wasn't quite right though, so it, it hurt a little bit. But that's fine. <laughs> no, because you're not. I mean, you do I'm your things you. your way. No, you're not me, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and I'm not you, and neither should the two meet. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Anyway, it is Psalm. Our responsorial Psalm is Psalm 67, verses two to three, five, six, and eight. This is a very short Psalm, so I think we have almost the entirety of it packed in here. Yep, that sounds about right. And then our um, reading that is the second ah. one or mm-hmm. third one, depending on the things. Romans Fair enough. chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, <laughs> jumping all the way to 29 to 32. Our gospel is from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. So I was talking to um, uh, my, my good friend and roommate from college, mm. Father Greg Peterson, mm. now the Father Greg Peterson. And uh, I was like talking to him. I'm like, if there was one thing that I desired in my seminary formation other than anything else, it would be a full year long of just studying the book of Isaiah. Oh. Two two semesters, six credits of Isaiah. That sounds horrible. No, I mean, it's tough. Isaiah's hard. It's horrible now because I, I don't want to scandalize anybody. It's a hard, I think it's the book in the Bible that I struggle with the most. That's what I'm saying. It's no. like, it's like if, if I've, but no, I mean, nobody can teach six credits uh, Maybe on that's Isaiah. why I'm stressed out. I'm like, oh, they're going to ask me to teach. You're like, I can't yeah, do six out. credits on Isaiah. Nobody can do six credits on Isaiah. And yet that is the church. Do we have Isaiah Somebody every week of have. our whole life? Yes, we do. A lot of it. Literally, why do they, the church is insistent and it's very complicated that way it's complicated um but this section actually isn't terribly complicated okay and there's um a whole chunk of chapters here that sometimes get kind of read separately from one another okay but i want to read them together because it's actually very important so the chapter before this so we're in chapter 56 which is all about a big pilgrimage that come uh, of people from every nation and tribe and tongue and everything coming to Jerusalem to Mount Zion for pilgrimage. The previous chapter is all about a gigantic feast that takes place where, you know, all of Israel gathers together to share this feast and this big celebration. And what is important to remember is that when the Bible was written, there weren't chapter divisions or verse divisions. It was all together. And so it's appropriate to read the feast and the pilgrimage together as one thing. So when you see Israel having this giant feast together, and then in the next chapter, a bunch of people from every other nation and tribe and tongue coming on pilgrimage, presumably they're coming to the feast. They're coming to the feast that Israel is celebrating. Of heaven and earth? Well, kind of. It's it's not so on a certain level. Um, the book is, and this is where Isaiah gets really complicated. So yeah, you're right. On a certain level, it's pointing forward, way forward to this eschatological vision in the heavenly Jerusalem, where there'll be the heavenly banquet and the bride, you know, the feast of the Lamb, of which we have but, the interpreter. J- Jesus is the interpreter and he, shows us he that. is. He is, but on another level, there's a more immediate fulfillment, which is, I think, the exist the, the birth of the church. 
in which all tribes, tongues, and nations will come into the church, which becomes the new Zion. Regardless, Isaiah is kind of looking for it after this time of exile and punishment, which you're facing first from uh, Assyria and then from Babylon later on, there's going to be reconciliation. Things are going to kind of be okay again. So there's, um, yeah, there's, there's a feast and then there's a pilgrimage. And what I want to say... Do you know that my license plate in my, on my car says Pilgrim? Pilgrim. I did know I, that. I was very happy. I wanted a custom license plate, and so I got the Pilgrim. As, as well you should have. Because you get seven letters. All right. So what it says is, um, thus says the Lord, observe what is right, do what is just, for my salvation is about to come. My justice will be revealed. Again, this is being written and given in prophecy to an Israel who is struggling and being persecuted and beat down and hauled off into exile and slavery and everything is really, really rough. And then we jump ahead. Actually, I want to read what's in the intervening because this is one of those Sundays where what we don't read says as much as what we do. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So uh, verse two, it says, blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no, I love, this is a beautiful verse, which we don't get this Sunday, but it's right in the middle. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch ex- complain, I am only a dry tree. Um, it is grammatically worded in a weird backward way, but it's yeah. basically saying, look, if you're an outsider, if you're a foreigner, if you feel like you're far off, don't you dare say that you have no place in the Lord's family. Because of what it says about the Lord and about what it says about the Lord's family. You are you were invited. And those who keep the law, those who keep justice and righteousness and the Sabbath, you are going to be brought back to life. He goes on and he says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, to hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and within its walls a memorial and a name. A memorial and a name, which is actually the uh, the title that was given to the Holocaust memorial. Um, when it was oh. when it was erected, a memorial and a name. Oh wow! And I'm blanking on the Hebrew of that because it's actually quite beautiful. But it comes from this passage, the idea of a memorial and a name. And I am trying to find it quickly in my notes, but I can't. And it's it's kind of cool though. Anyway, but we go on. Um, better than sons and daughters. You're better than sons and daughters. You're even more. Uh, I will give them an everlasting name. It will never be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, who serve him, literally shamar him, who listen and obey him, who love the name of the Lord and worship him, who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifice will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all of the nations. Which is a really important stopping point because that's precisely what Jesus quotes in the gospel. When he says, when he's flipping over the tables and the money changers and talking about all the corruption and the sin that has entered into the temple and into Jerusalem, he says, it was said that my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you guys have made it into a den of robbers and thieves. So he pulls from this specifically, this beautiful image of all the nations coming. But here's what we got to catch. And here's what we have. So if you read it on its own, it's like, oh, that's really cool. That's really beautiful. All the nations of the earth will eventually come to the the one true God of Israel, to the home, to the temple, which will be their home as well as Israel's home. And it's this beautiful, you know, future vision of this thing. There's a big but, though, and this is much darker than it seems. And actually, that was the first thing I wanted to say about Isaiah. It's a lot darker of a passage than it looks like. Right. Because then if you read on, it says in verse 9, Come, all of you beasts of the field, come and devour you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen. Now, again, you have to read this right in the context of number one, a huge feast that's going on. Number two, a giant pilgrimage of people from the foreign nations who are coming to join the feast. And then part three, but Israel's watchmen, their leaders are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are mute dogs who cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They have never enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one cries. Let us get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. Tomorrow will be like today or even far better. So there's a feast. There is pilgrims coming from all nations coming to partake in the feast. And the leaders of Israel who are hosting the feast, who are the leaders of this, are getting drunk on the wine, who are abusing, who are like dogs, who are eating the sheep, who are coming to the feast in their care. 
And so there's a profound warning in this. Oh, it's a great feast. Oh, all the nations of the earth are going to come. But when they do, watch out because the leaders of the people of God are going to be like dogs who eat them, who can never get their fill and never be satiated, who are drunk on power and drunk on their own big headedness and all of these things, which you have to imagine is what's in Jesus's back of his head when he's giving this condemnation on the temple and saying, you guys have made it into a den of robbers and thieves. You're being what Isaiah predicted or foretold. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the fact that now here's what's going to come into play later on. I never noticed before because I know this passage, but I've never noticed that Isaiah calls the leaders of Israel dogs, which is going to become very important oh, later on. Oh, yeah. And it's subtle and it kind of passes by, but we'll come back to that point. So it's this beautiful eschatological vision with a giant but that says but it's not going to be, you know, Israel is going to basically receive this gift. The people of God are going to be given this gift of a feast when God finally brings them back to life and reconciles them back to himself and all nations of the earth will be invited back into it. But those who were there to begin with, those who are the leaders, who are kind of keepers of the house, will let it go to their heads and get drunken on power and start abusing and actually eating the people who are coming to them. And you're like, ooh, that's raw. This is rough. Yeah, yeah, this is really dark. So, thanks but, for coming, everybody. Thanks yeah, for listening. Yeah, well, we'll be back next week. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like <laughs> no. when I read this passage, I mean, the, the the one that always just strikes me is that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So, you, like, literally, it, you you leave with this this one image yeah. when in reality it's couched in the middle of, of like, right. whoa, this is, like, what does it mean for people to engage in? Like, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I mean, like, the church... Is always holy. Yes. Like, it, it, theologically, you know, Because she is in Christ and Christ is holy. Right. And, and that the, is fundamentally what makes the church holy. Right. Even though... Even though... There's a bunch of there's a, Right. There's a, there's a very hard times that we've been going through with some of the yeah. shepherds and leaders of, of the new Israel. Which, and yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, but... There's something weirdly comforting about the fact—so this is one of the effects that Scripture is trying to serve, of and, and this is on the grand theological scale—of looking at the world and saying, look, this is how God wanted it to be. This is what God has promised you and longs for you to have. But the human experience says, yeah, that's great. That sounds awesome, but that's not how life is. Right. That's not how the church is. That's not my experience. And so the church comes in and says, yes, I know it's not, and here's why. It's because God has his plan A. God has his will for you and his longing for your life. But human beings, through disobedience, going all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, have tried to undone this and tried to undo this. And none of that goes outside of God's sight. It's not outside of his purview. He is aware. He sees this and there will be justice and there will be recompense. And he is not going to let his will be thwarted just because some leaders became like dogs and started eating the people in their care which we've experienced in the church in our own time. We've experienced in the church hundreds of years prior to this, thousands of years prior to this, and we're probably going to see in the future. And the scriptures are almost like they're saying, it's okay. God's will will not be thwarted by bad leadership. Mm. And God's actually bigger than that, believe it or not. Because again, the experience of reading scripture is saying, this is the ideal I have for my people. And us saying, that's awesome, but that's not what life feels like right now. Mm. And God's saying, I know. It's okay, and I've still got you. I know it's scary, and I know there's storms raging outside of the house, and I know it doesn't feel like a house of prayer for all the nations, but I've got you. I've got you. Cling close to me, and we'll get through the storm, which reminds me of our reading from last week, right, with the storm and Peter going on the water and and a God who's like, I'm coming to you, and I know it's really wild and, and stormy, but it's okay. And there's something weirdly comforting about the fact that the scriptures have prophesied this to us and says, when you see all this happening, you don't have to be dismayed because God knew it was going to happen and we're going to get through. Right. I don't know. So there's a weird comfort to that, sort yeah. of, if you can have comfort in the midst of something. Mm. Which, which brings you, us to, to the, the psalm. psalm. Yeah, exactly. Like That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh-huh. So God let all the nations praise you. I mean, which is really picking up from this last line. Yeah. But, it's, but it also says that, hey, every nation is being called into the mess. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like yeah, it, it, I mean, there's victory, but it does not mean it's not messy. Oh, I thought you said the mass. 
the mass. And I was like, you're right. I don't you're know where like, you're going you're with like, that. What, yeah. are you, what are you talking about? No, <laughs> the mess. No, and the, the mass. The mass and the mess. The, yeah. You know? The, the <laughs> Maybe that's going to be the title of the podcast. The mass right? and the mess. It's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's, that is real, though, because, I mean, not. I, I guess I didn't make this explicit, but really... In an eschatological way, yes, it's pointing toward the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly banquet, but in a in a in a shorter eschatological way from the Old Testament's perspective, this is talking about people coming to the mass. Right, where do you go feast, to? Where does all feast. nations come to a pilgrim feast at Mount Zion? It's going to the mass to receive the Eucharist to come to this celebration. And surprise, surprise, there's people who actually show up in the mass, and maybe some priests and bishops who are responsible for people who are not so holy. Mm. And again, God is saying, "I know." And it's not that it's okay, but I've got you. Yeah, like, but we can't. The mass and the mess, I think, really is the one of the the interpretive keys to these things. Yeah, but because who's ruling the nations? God. May the nations be glad and exult because you rule the nations, right. the peoples in 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 equity. Right. The nations on the people uh, of the earth, you guide. You guide. Like, like that's the thing is that God really is in charge, and and if we lose fact, we lose sight of that, then we lose the fact that. Like we we use the shorthand, the the, the victory is won. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, nobody really feels that. Right. The, the, right. The, that is right. not an yes. existential experience. Like right. like if right. you're feeling that, it's a specific gift of the Holy Spirit that will last a few moments for you. Yeah. Right. If that. Right. Like yeah. you, you know, you, you, every once in a while, yeah. you do. You have this insight, and you're like, the victory is won, and you feel it. But then the truth yeah. is, is that you, you just go but back that's in. That's not my experience. But that's not my what, what I feel like, and so we need these reminders. We need to sing the song. You rule the people on earth yourself. Ah. Oh. I thought you were going to sing it. Oh. You said we got to sing the song, and then you said it. That's I, a huge letdown. I, man. One important thing about that, though, because you're absolutely I'm right. Sorry just, that I didn't sing for no, you No, it's all. okay. Sing for me, monkey boy. <laughs> that is what it sounded like I was saying. Um, the, I don't know if this is a significant point or not, but it was just what my what my jumped to my mind as you were saying that. The nations of the earth you guide. There, there's this image. I almost think of like, you know, a little a little kid's picture in a little child's room or like a a. a parish bookstore you know of a little holy image of like god jesus guiding a little child like through the forest or something or playing and, basketball with or playing oh my gosh i've told you about my friend adam's bedroom and he had this picture of jesus playing basketball and just schooling this kid <laughs> and it's always been one of my favorite images <laughs> he's just owning this kid he's trying to make a shot and she's oh my gosh anyway um <laughs> I love but my point is so i have this sort of, of image of like he guides us but saying that God is guiding all of the nations, and again, this is what the first reading makes explicit, guiding suggests an end. It doesn't just, you know, it's, it, <laughs> the journey is not always the destination, as the bumper sticker goes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. There's right. A, the journey is significant, but right. it also uh, implies that there is an end. Right. And in the first reading, they're I going... Need a, I need a Sherpa to get to the top of Everest. To get me to the place. Yeah. And, and that's important. And so what is the top of Everest in this case? To the church, to right. the mass, yeah. which is a foreshadowing. It's not a foreshadowing. It's a taste of the heavenly banquet that is to come. Not that, w- and when we go to mass, and this is where it gets complicated theologically, we are experiencing, we're living in that heavenly banquet when we go to the mass, when we participate in the life of the church. Right. We just can't see it in its fullness. Right. Because... So we need the guide to hold our hands and be like, it's, it's like walking a child through a forest in the middle of the night. Right. I, it might, my... my uh, um, I, my parents, uh, my, my mother and father-in-law, Annie's folks, um, they just came out to Colorado. Um, and they're, they're, there's this house that they're, that they're, uh, um, going to be their house now and they haven't seen it yet. And so they came, it was kind of late last night and Annie went over there to meet them. And I just so badly wanted them to see the view out the window because there's this beautiful open right. space and these tall grasses right. and it's nighttime. And, and I, everything in me was like, Oh, if only you could see it. I wish you could see it. And tomorrow morning you'll get to see it. And I just kept like almost going overboard of like, I, you're just going to love the view. I can't wait for you to go have a cup of coffee on the patio. And I was just so like worked up about this view that they couldn't see. Right. It's there. It's sitting right out the front window. And it's beautiful. And it's really pristine and, and lovely and peaceful. Right. And it's there. And that's reality. And that is true. They just can't see it at that moment. And that's, in a certain sense, what this psalm is saying. That's what God is doing. He's guiding us, but he's guiding us to the place that we already are. Mm. We just can't see what's around us. It's, it's so interesting. I was talking to Adam Hermanson, our uh, uh, yeah. architect here, and 
he uh and, and friend and old old friend and uh he just was talking i was just talking about adding some imagery in the church and he was like you know when it comes down to Jesus it Jesus school the basketball picture i'm gonna add that right behind the, <laughs> behind the, the altar the sanctuary just, yeah yes. <laughs> that's the most Excellent. disturbing <laughs> you've said to me in a long time i love if we it. had a gym or if we had a school if that is what you want to put in your gym dude, yeah you put that on all the, of you pastors a, who have schools in mosaic think, think about that <laughs> <laughs> Over the opposing teams. Jesus longer. schools the little children, you know. <laughs> okay, come, sorry, back come, to Adam come to me. <laughs> Adam Hermanson, Adam Hermanson. Okay, he's, but he, imagery. But, but it, it was just essentially this, is like um, when you're in the mass, how do you actually help people understand that that the entirety of the church is gathered and celebrating so that you can actually assist the imagination mm. to be able to comprehend in some way that all of heaven earth and purgatory are gathered in a singular moment for is purgatory there too oh yeah man okay yeah the church the church victorious the church militant the church 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 purgative yeah yeah okay you're right i had to think about that when you said it because you don't hear that talked about as much yeah dude but yeah you're right absolutely i mean like dude that's the best part about purgatory is it's a lot like to go to mass yeah (laughs) <laughs> I'm still gonna be late when I'm in purgatory. Going to mass. <laughs> ah, crap! It started no, five minutes ago. No, dude, this I'm is never gonna thing, get a seat. This is the thing: is that <laughs> so many things are gonna interrupt you on the way to trying to get to mass and purgatory. That will be purgatory. That is your purgatory. Oh, is just gosh. trying to get to mass oh. forever. All right, we gotta move on. This is, that's too much. That's too much, <laughs> dude. That's the mass and the mess that's for sure. <laughs> that's the mass and the mess, baby. <laughs> so then we go Romans. into Romans. Yeah, Romans. Oh, All right, so Romans. They're just trying to get to mass. They're just trying to get to mass, but the Romans are. I don't know. I'm just, no, saying, no, no, no. I'm just saying it didn't. I was work. trying to find it. I was trying to capitalize. I, on I know it. it was trying to like we were trying to make a link, but there was no link that existed. No, I mean there was mass in Rome, presumably. <laughs> um, we've talked about Romans a lot. I, I love I love that the second reading has been kind of plowing through this long section of Romans for the last what a couple months even now. Uh-huh. I've loved it because you know I love Romans. It's my, yep. it's my it's my jam. Right. That's my jam. What an idiot. That's says, my who jam. says that? <laughs> Dude, the, oh, my some, daughter, some, my middle school daughter the, would roll her eyes from at the me 2010s, so hard right now. The 2010s. They remember, they said that in 2006. Trying to be cool because yeah, it was out of this style This is then. my jam, bro. <laughs> All right. Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. <laughs> so um, we've talked about Romans in the context of Romans, and there's this- You are cool, Scott. Thanks, man. Actually, I think it was actually really endearing. The jam, yeah, yeah, it's not. But it, but but when it's gone, when, it, when it's gone to endearing at that point, it's not okay oh, anymore. Oh, jeez, it's like Grandpa said. <laughs> Grandpa said, "Lit, everything's lit." <laughs> Dude, <All right>. yeah, <laughs> when Grandpa starts d- dapping, what is it? D- derping, Dab- dabbing, dabbing. Seriously, yeah, yeah, you man, derping, derping. <laughs> okay. Um, the context of Romans is that we have this this community of believers, Jewish Christian, so Jewish converts to Christianity. Actually, I don't even know if you could properly say the Jews were converts. If you follow Paul's theology that that Christianity is the natural extension of what was Israel and right. what was Judaism. So anyway, um, Christians who who came from Judaism and Christians who came from Gentile pagan religions, uh, non-Jewish backgrounds, who are having a really hard time getting along with each other. Um, there was an expulsion of a lot of the Jewish people, all of them by Emperor Claudius. They've come back. There's a power structure. Um, people, you know, things are things are out of balance. Gentiles are in power. Jewish people don't seem very happy about that. Leadership in the church, there is ethnic fights and dislike and hatred and all sorts of other stuff going on. Um, and in the midst of that, Paul has been talking about how the fact that Jew and Gentile are together in the family of God as all of the nations coming to Mount Zion, as was foretold in the first reading in Isaiah, Basically, what Paul is saying throughout the whole book of Romans is you guys are literally the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. And if you are fighting and having hatred over one another over that, then you're essentially like the dogs who want to eat each other or eat their flock in Isaiah. And that's problematic for what God has actually laid out. So you need to get your act together to basically demonstrate that you are able to live out the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so it raises this question, though, of, 
well, what about all of Israel who rejected it? What about all the Israelites who've rejected the Messiah? What do we do about them? And Paul, we talked about this last week, talks about his weeping and mourning over the fact that, yeah, so many of my brethren have abandoned the Messiah and rejected him. And that shouldn't be a source of contention or a source of mockery or derision or, you know, hatred or looking down upon, but should be a source of deep pain and mourning and weeping. And I do that, says Paul. And now he turns to the Gentiles and he says in chapter 11, all right. And he says, I love it when he's explicit. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, just so you know exactly who I'm talking to. It's like he's looking at that side of the parish. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that he, he identifies here his specific vocation within the church. He is the 13th apostle. And that's actually an important theological point. And we've, I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast or not, but I often will talk to people about, you know, how does Paul have the the gall or the authority, however you want to look at it, to call himself an apostle because there were 12 apostles and the 12 apostles are there to look over the 12 tribes of Israel, which God has reshaped and reformed into the church. And what Paul comes in and basically explains to us is that it's not enough for Israel to be 12 tribes any longer because Israel is not simply 12 tribes. There is a 13th because Isaiah, among other prophecies, foretold that all the nations of the earth will become united and a part of this family. Dude, that's blowing my mind. I got to tell you, I've never Have heard we never this. talked about We've this? We've never talked Are about this. Are you kidding? This. This, is new, this is new information. So he's essentially the 13th apostle because he's like, there's a 13th tribe and it's all the other nations. It sounds and like I'm a an TV show title. The 13th tribe? The 13th apostle. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we'll make it. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, that, that I mean, it makes so much sense because right. I've always, I've always asked, like, who do you think you are? Paul? Yeah, like, why do you? Because why yeah. does he get this specific explanation? But then, because right. especially since he's a Jew, yeah, right, and exactly so like, right. So like, out of this, uh, being born of the nation of Israel, he is, as a Hebrew. I mean, I've always been like, okay, yeah, he he's like specially and abnormally born, as he would say, right. But the, but then he being able to convey the full Semitic worldview to the Gentiles, like that's how I'm actually like understanding that. But then yeah. he but then he is, is doing the great conciliation, right? And his his identification as an apostle is a theological explanation and reshaping of what everybody thought Israel was. Because it's bigger now, and he's saying, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of this, or I'm helping facilitate the fulfillment of all these things, every nation. So, you guys, my flock in particular, he's saying, I'm speaking to you guys now, in as much as I am your apostle. And the fact that there's something, he's kind of ticked off in a certain sense, right. but there's also something beautiful about him saying, I'm your apostle. Right. You have an apostle. You're not just outsiders. You're not just kind of Johnny-come-latelys that, that have kind of just shown up to the party a little bit late. You have a designated apostle. You know what I mean? You've got someone to guide you, like the uh, like the psalm was talking about. Um, he says, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous. Who's his race? The Jewish people, whom Paul, again, talks about how he was the most learned of all of the Jewish scholars. Paul's got kind of a big head. But he talks about, I was the, a Jew of Jews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe that didn't abandon the rest of Israel in the Civil War. I am, you know, as learned as you can be. I'm a Pharisee. Like, I am it. I'm the greatest you can get. And he's saying, I'm glory. And, and he is precisely sent to the group of people who would appreciate his resume and his identity probably the least. Right? They're like, we don't really care. Right, right, <laughs> cool. exactly. It doesn't cool, matter. Yeah. And Peter, right, the uneducated out-of-work fisherman, is sent to convert all of the learned scribes and <laughs> leaders of Israel. It's it's God's flip-flopping way of doing things sometimes, right? Right. But he says maybe, this is what he's getting at here, maybe part of why God did that was to make my people jealous and think, how did they get our best guy? They got our best teacher, our best teacher went there. Our best teacher should be in our synagogues. Our best teacher should be in the temple. He should be teaching at our yeshivas. Like, he should be here. How dare those people out there get our best guy? And Paul's like, yeah, exactly. Feel that. Feel that pain. Feel mm, that annoyance. Right. Feel that jealousy. And maybe, maybe God will use that to save some of them, to bring some and say, well, why did he go there? It's like, you know, when somebody like Scott Hahn becomes a Catholic, all of his Protestant friends and his parishioners and the people he was a, he was a teacher of at seminary are like, well, you went to them? Like, you're one of our best guys, and you're talking to those people? Right. And Scott Hahn, when he converted, brought so many people with him. And they're like, man, if, right. if you 
are going to those people, maybe we should consider that. Maybe we should think more seriously about that. Um, right. So it's, this is Paul's thought. Right. It's like um, it's like uh, like uh, uh, Hideo Nomo leaves the Japanese baseball league to come over to do baseball in the American leagues. Or when Michael Jordan went to play baseball instead of basketball. Right, exactly. Or That's not or, the right analogy. Or, or Bo knows baseball. Bo knows, Bo knows man. Bo knows. Bo knows. <laughs> wow. That's making us old. Yeah, that feels weird. But here's where his theology kind of goes to the next level. Okay. And he says, for if their rejection, that is my people. And he's not them. He's not othering them. Because right. we're good at that in our culture. Paul's not doing that. He's saying, no, I'm, I am them. They are me. This is my brothers and sisters. And they've rejected the Messiah. And if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What does he mean? It was, and I th- I'm sure we've talked about this. You can read in Acts of the Apostles. It was specifically, so the church early on, did not seem to understand that their job was to go out to all the nations and be the light to the world. Mm. It was because of the specific persecution of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and Judea that actually got them kicked out and forced them to flee, the Christian leaders that is, that's what started the mission to the Gentiles, is that they were actively persecuted and had to run for their lives, and so they happened to wind up with the Gentiles who began hearing the Gospels and converting and becoming part of the family of God. And so Paul says their rejection actually led to the reconciliation of the world. Their sin, God is so much bigger than any sin that we can commit right. that he can actually use that for the reconciliation of the world. And if he can use their sin, imagine, imagine what their acceptance could mean. But life from the dead, truly, to imagine that God is actually big enough. And he says for your gifts, this is important. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. So in other words... The fact that Israel has rejected the Messiah does not actually make them less Israel. Right. They're just Israel having rejected the Messiah. Right. And I, I, I was thinking about this politically, and I'm not going to go into politics again. And I mentioned Joe Biden last week, and I, I got some interesting emails and stuff. But um, right. we like, at least in political and in media stuff, we like to talk about I'm, – I'm always intrigued because it's scandalous. And we, we're, you know, we kind of – our weird side of us like wanting to watch a car accident. We like watching other people's scandals. But there is this this sense of like, oh, my gosh, you know, these these supposed Catholics or these people who claim to be Catholic and are not the 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 beauty and the tragedy of being Catholic is that if you are a Baptist people, students come to my office asking this question regularly. Can you ever stop being a Catholic? And the answer the church would have is no, no. Because you were baptized, which means you were indelibly changed forever. Your soul has been changed and right. altered. You can never stop being a Catholic. You can be a bad Catholic. You can be a Catholic who rejects the church and her teachings. You can teachings. be a Catholic who decides to contact your priest and say, I don't want to be registered at your parish anymore. Which, Absolutely. Which it's so funny because registration is, is nice. <laughs> oh, but it's, yeah, you know. yeah. But, but you, I mean, any more than I can stop being a Powell. Any more than I can stop being the child of my parents. You can't do, I can reject them. I could be mean to them. I could never want to talk to them again. But you can't stop that. And that's what Paul's saying about Israel. Yeah, they've rejected the Messiah, but you need to be careful, all of you Gentiles out there, for the gifts and the call of God, that's irrevocable. And you guys disobeyed God too, because you were far from God as in your Gentile pagan religion. Um, But now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. So now they have disobeyed in order that by virtue of the mercy shown to you, they can receive mercy too. Because you've both disobeyed, and God, this is where God, Paul comes to the conclusion of everybody stinks. You all stink. You've right. all disobeyed. And because if you actually can see how profoundly disobedient you have been, and those people who you really dislike and you think are really so much more terrible than you are, right. that they've disobeyed and you've disobeyed, then maybe you can tap into the understanding of the mercy that he's actually shown to all. And then maybe you can pray for their coming back to the faith instead of sitting and scoffing how terrible and how far away from the faith they are. Mm. That's what Paul's trying to get through their skulls. And he's like, this is God's integrity that is at stake. Not that God's integrity is ever in question, right. but you are supposed to be the witness to God's integrity. Mm. And if you act as though God is not integral and God is not faithful to his promises and his prophecies like in Isaiah, then you are calling the integrity of God into question. And you are being a counter witness to the rest of the world if you actually don't believe in God's mercy and don't believe in the reconciliation of the people who are called to be his people. 
So Paul's taking a lot on this. I'm not trying to overdo this. Right. But Paul's saying there's a lot hanging on this. Right. Well, and and I think about I mean, this establishment, like, because so, if we move into the gospel. Yeah, which we ought to. You, what, <laughs> what ends up happening is Jesus says, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because he he's actually trying to, like, the, the, the goal isn't to remain in just Israel, but actually the expansive truth of saying, no, this house is about to expand. Yes. And so, he, but, but there's a process that it has to go through. There's a process. And it's, it's, you gave a great, uh, um, prophecy, homily, homily. <laughs> about the idea of the new evangelization, which is the right analogy here. So it says at that time, Jesus withdrew. He went away to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, which is this kind of, so he's left the Israelite territory. He's not in Northern Kingdom or Southern Kingdom. He's gone outside of it to this, uh, I think it's Phoenician at the time. It's Isn't this it coastal Northern territory. Most? Uh, it's Northwest of Israel. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Northwest of Israel, but they're outside of the boundaries of Israel. They're, oh. in, they're in pagan lands now. Okay. And it says, behold, a Canaanite woman. So it's not a hard stretch kind of geopolitically to imagine that there's still some remnants of the Canaanite. Remember, the Canaanites were around back in the time of Joshua, for Pete's sake. Right. So there's some remnants of the Canaanite peoples, which hearkens us all of a sudden back to the, the giving of the promised land to begin with. And there's this Canaanite woman outside of Israel, outside of the borders, in the you know no man's land outside of the the people that we are concerned were, about were they doing an offsite is that what was happening i guess you know so like, it's unclear why jesus went there he's like because there's no reason to go there <laughs> they did an offsite. probably just yeah. they just <laughs> let's do an offsite guys i just think it's so funny to apply corporate language <laughs> to jesus <laughs> did an offsite. Like, <laughs> it's oh that's actually pretty funny because they did they went to an offsite yeah they did an offsite so but but it's probably i mean because of the gospels we know that it was specifically for this conversation yeah, which is strange because Jesus, the, I, I don't, I have some thoughts on this. I don't know. I don't have any better conclusions, but I feel like I have better questions. Mm. So I don't understand what Jesus is doing here. And I'm going to make that crystal clear right now. I don't okay. get it. Yeah. But I feel like I'm asking better questions about it now. Okay. That I've studied let's, some of this. Then let's, let's look what, like, let's get, let's examine what he is doing. So I've never really thought much about the, the, the um, identification of this person as a Canaanite woman. Which again, the Canaanites are pre- got to be pretty few and far between at this time. I mean, they're they're pretty much obliterated at this point in history, but there's right. still a few. So the fact that Matthew actually points out that she's a Canaanite tells me that Matthew has has kind of an agenda behind that. So a Canaanite woman, she she's calling out, she's yelling to him, "Have pity on me, Lord, son of David." The fact that a Canaanite woman in a non-Israelite, non-Jewish territory is calling out to the son of a foreign king who she was never under the jurisdiction of is fascinating. Right. Son of David is a weird identification for a non-Jew, right? Well, well no, it, because she would say, like, here's one that is, is underneath this kingdom of David. But the fact that she sees this value somehow so, or authority in a king who was not her own mm. and thus his son. I, I yeah. it's intrig- it's interesting to me. It, well, it it points to her spiritual insight of I what guess, reality is here. I guess I just think of Narnia, you know, son yeah. of Adam. Like like use it using it as an as a as a as a racial identifier. Okay. Oh, okay. But she calls him Lord. I mean there's a, there it's not just a racial identifier. She's paying him homage. Like she is actually giving him royal homage from that title. Oh, that no, that's Lord, Lord, son of David. Okay. And then it goes on. It gets even right. better. Okay. She says, my daughter is tormented by a demon. Um, but you're right. But it, but she goes beyond that. No, no, that. no. I, I, yeah. Now I see what you're saying. So my daughter is tormented by a demon. She reminds me of the centurion in a lot of ways yep. who makes a similar request, non-Jew. Uh, Jesus didn't say a word in answer. He like, what do you think that looked like? Is he just pretending he doesn't hear her? Um, the disciples... Came and asked him, send her away. She keeps yelling at us. That's, that's literally the better Greek interpretation. And can you just picture your staff being like, can you send that person away? They just keep yelling at us. Right. Father. Right. Like, my daughter's tormented by a demon. Stop and, yelling at me. And, and we're like, we're just trying to have a staff meeting off site. <laughs> we're having an off site. We're having an off site. you guys here. let us do it. And, and, and he's, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, and they're, and they're like, they're, you know, you come up to me and you're like, just can you, can you can deal you with this, brother? She's yelling. Like some person outside the window is, Father Peter, Father Peter. Like, do you want me to Father do Peter. something? Can we get rid of her? Yeah. You know, like, exactly. And Jesus said in reply, I was sent to the, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
we know that's not entirely true because he's gone to people who are not of the house of Israel, or at least he will. And in other gospels, we see him occasionally, occasionally ministering to people who are not of the house of Israel, the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, I guess she's of the house of Israel. I guess that's true. Yeah, because she's a but, half, yeah, yeah, she's half Jewish. But the, um, uh, the, the centurion, I don't know. So there's that, that line you're like, is that enti- like what are you what are you saying there? I'm not calling Jesus's words and and his honesty into question. I'm just saying, what are you really saying? And I'm not sure he is talking about there is a mode in which I want my kingdom to come into full force in the world, which goes back to your explanation of the new evangelization, which was actually it was John, Paul the sixth who coined the term. Everyone gives it to John Paul the second. John Paul the second popularized it, but Paul the sixth in the sixties coined the term the new evangelization, which is this idea that, hey, there's all of these baptized Catholics out there in the world who have fully no clue what they're doing. Catholics, right? yeah. Fully initiated Catholics who have no clue what they're doing, who have never been introduced to Jesus. We should deal with that, and we should go introduce them to the person who they're essentially wedded to. He used a marital analogy in his writings about this. And it was saying, you know, the church has never really dealt with this before, that there's all these people who are actually fully initiated into something that they actually don't even know about. And we got to deal with that. But you know what I love? No. I love that um, after my homily and attributing it to John Paul II. Did you? That you. Oh, I didn't know your, you attributed your, it to John your, Paul II. In your heart. You, I didn't know you, you were attributed like, it like, to you're, him. You're, you're, oh. This is my love of your passion for truth. <sighs> Right? Is you're like you, you're like so many people do this, that's but it's not, not my right. Inten- it's no, just, that's like, not what I. Is. I didn't I did. register that you said no, it. No, no, but it just. It, but, oh, sorry, but, but it makes for the. I like truth. <laughs> you know, it's mm. not just that you like truth; that you're passionate and you're I like correcting people <laughs> in <laughs> passive aggressive ways. I like to passive aggressively correct people. <laughs> the, 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 that's exactly it. It's like it's like, but but it's to say, come, come back, and so you have the old evangelization, yeah. which is. Which which is, which is come it, back. Which is Paul. Which is Paul. It, actually, that's why this is such an important analogy here. Right. And he's saying, again, with this idea, the new evangelization is so profound because, again, we're not just kind of re-evangelizing people who have lost it. They, You can't lose it. Right. It's an indelible mark emplaced on your soul if you're baptized. Right. You can't lose that. You just need to be reminded of it or maybe told in the first place about it. Right. But that's what Paul's saying, that the call is irrevocable. Israel's call is irrevocable. The Catholic's call is irrevocable. Irrevocable. You can choose to reject, reject it or whatever. But, but, And so Jesus is saying it's, it's appropriate that the mission of the kingdom to go out to all the nations— needs something for the nations to come back to. We need to build Israel back up. So it's appropriate that he went to Jewish people to establish his apostles, um, you know, his mother, the family he was born into. It was necessary that it come through Israel so that all the nations could then be grafted into Israel. Mm-hmm. So it would be silly to start at the peripheries and come back. Mm-hmm. But again, he then will appoint people to go and, and do all sorts of things. But for the purposes of his mission, mainly he's going to the lost sheep of Israel to remind them of their call, which the call of the gospel is not a new call. It was the call that Israel already had and always had that we just forgot about so that we can go out to the rest of the world and tell them what they've never heard before. Right. This person is one who you'd think had never heard this before. But she had. And I'm going to come back to her Canaanite identity in a second. Um, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, there's a mode, in other words, he's saying, in which this needs to happen. And the woman said, Lord, it's, she paid Jesus homage, which, again, this is royal um, deference. She may have fallen prostrate. We're not sure. She said, Lord, help me. And he said in reply, it's not right to give the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. And she said, so the dogs is a common way in which the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders would refer to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They're the dogs. And uh, she said, please, Lord, for even the do-. she comes back at him with this amazingly profoundly thought out response. Please, Lord, even the dogs get the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. I don't know if it's thought, that, thought out. I think it's just like, dude, when you're desperate, you're like, you're just looking for some path. But she found it. I mean, I she guess that's did. what that's what I mean. Well was, thought out. It she was, was quick piercing. It's piercing. And this is where I don't know what Jesus is doing here. So uh, he says in his short reply, "Oh, great is your faith." And every commentary I said, I read. You know, he he says her faith is great because, you know, she's persistent and she has the 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 posture before God of like begging for what we need, which is right and good. But the fact that Jesus says. 
um, it's not right to throw the children to to take the food. It's not maybe right. from a banquet. It's not right to throw the children to the dogs. It's not right to throw the children to the dogs. I'm just kidding. That's no, like a... no. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Because what's the first reading all about? The children of the foreign nation being thrown to the dogs. Mm. Who are the dogs in the first reading in the Isaiah? Sh- the shepherds. The shepherds of Israel. And what are they doing? Eating the nations, the foreign nations, the Gentiles, as scraps from a table who are supposed to be invited to the banquet of Israel. Mm. And that's where I don't actually have a good answer to what's going on here. But I'm not willing to concede that Jesus is just using some derogatory name that everyone's used to using right. to kind of mess with this woman. Jesus knows the scriptures. He is ultimately the author of them. And he knows that the warning of the banquet to which the outsiders and the foreigners, including the Canaanites, will come will be the dogs of the Israelite leadership feasting upon the scraps of the outsiders. And I I can't see a way around Jesus not knowing that. And it makes me wonder what he's actually saying. Well, who are the do- who is the dog in the story? Well, is he referring to her that way, or is he referring to somebody else that way? Well, do you know what I'm saying? Okay, well, this is this is this is like what I'm what I'm connecting. Okay, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Yeah. So what what are the like? How easy is it to turn your life into a virus? To take an idea and because what is a, a virus? But it's like a singular agenda mm. that injects itself and destroys that which injects it injects itself into to reproduce itself. Yeah. So in okay. a certain sense, it's this kind of like virality yeah. um, th- that uh, when a, sh- a shepherd, mm. what what ends up happening is that is is a shepherd when it's a, when a shepherd's abusive, it basically takes this idea and destroys. And eats and consumes, and how easy is it in in an evangelization to just twist somebody up when what they're longing for is an eschatological experience? They're saying, "What am I made for? Why is this? This is and and for somebody who's ignorant in the midst of of uh, this this kind of wedding, this this being wedded, it's like it's like you you take somebody ignorant in their in their faith, and you can weaponize them by giving them the wrong idea, the wrong agenda. You can consume them by making it not about the person of Jesus Christ, but the person of God, but about some sort of weird activism and how how easily does it in, in, enter into somebody mm. to, to transform them and destroy them in the same moment? Right, absolutely. And so, so like I, I hear that, and I but I hear this house of nations for all people. So like, what in the process of evangelization, what are we trying to evangelize people to? Some sort of mission? Like j- mere mission without the person of Christ is mm-hmm. just activism. It's, it's just activism. It's it's yeah. just destructive. Empty activism. It's empty activism versus the the encounter with Jesus Christ missions us and gives us a, an ability to do the things in the world for the proper end. Which is what inviting all nations to the feast. To the feast, the pilgrim feast. Do you notice that Jesus never wants, because again, this is one of the ways I think I've misread this. Maybe, I don't know. Right. Jesus never says no in this passage. Mm. And I always read it in the negative. Mm. She says, heal my heal my daughter. Why is it a daughter or a son? Heal my child, whatever it is. My daughter. Um, Jesus never says no. He, he says just it's says, not right. He doesn't even say that. He just says, you can almost read his statements on their own, like he's using her as sort of a foil to make a statement about something else. I was sent, he never says, no, I will not heal your daughter because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He never says no. All he says is that I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, period. Right. And then she says, but, you know. Uh, and, and he says, Lord, help, Lord, Lord help me. me. It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dog. But he doesn't call her a dog. Right. I mean, you can read it that way. And maybe right. it's right it, to do that. Well, but well, I think I'm that, not convinced well, that this he's not making thing. a statement about something else. I think that you're actually, the food it, is for it's her. a both and. I think the food is for her. And I think the shepherds of Israel at the time had become the dogs. And he's going to feed her, not just with the scraps, but with the banquet. Mm. And it's not right that the dogs should feast on something else. Because I wonder my if house there's... will be called a house of prayer for all people. Correct. And, and in a real way, the, the, like the genius of the putting these scriptures together is... This... Is to not is to say no. This is actually what the intention is that there's an old ev- the, 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 there's an evangelization. Yes, 
but you need to know the story or you're going to actually miss something pretty important here. You're going to actually be like what Paul's excellence is, which is to inaugurate the Gentile people into the into the worldview of the Israelites. Yes. And and so in in a certain we, in a weird way you could read this and say I'm going to inaugurate into the world of the Israelites. I'm it's not right for so I do have a mission. Yes. And, and there's a, a mode and, a, and an order in which this goes. Right. And you are coming in from the outside. Yes. And you have to know that that there is super duper conflict that you're entering into. Yes. That yes. That, that that this is more than just healing here. Right. This isn't this this is nice, and I'll do this, but there this is bigger than just taking care of a particular problem for your daughter. Right. So you can go home and kind of forget about this. I've never read it this way. And ever. then it says from for the woman's daughter was healed from that hour, presumably more. Here's the last thing I want to say about this. This woman. is really this is inverting right? in a way that I right? I didn't I couldn't have imagined. Because, and I'm, I'm hesitant because I've never considered this, but I, I don't right. know. But these readings together. The other thing I want to say about this is that this woman, she is I think um, a new version. I don't know what the opposite of foreshadowing would be. Um, she is a, a recasting of um, the woman in Jericho who hid the spies, mm. the Canaanite woman who had the faith to recognize that these guys were actually following the one true God and who wanted to be brought into the family mm. as one of the outsiders. And there's a, there's a lot more to that of geographics and, and racial stuff and the Canaanite. Well, think but about she this. is the embodiment of yeah. the faith that that woman actually had in the book of Joshua. Okay. So Matthew, who was what brought into the family? Right, but but think about Matthew for a second. His particular, um, his his work as a tax collector was to be an interface between the Gentiles and the Jews. Yeah, that's true. In a, in in a, in a twisted way, messed up way, but yeah, but right. that's true. But because of that, he Ugh. actually has a deep sense of Ugh. how because it's only Matthew that tells the story, right? right? How the Ugh. nations in Israel are interacting. Ugh. So, so Ugh. I think he wrote this down because he had a particular sensitivity to say, like, okay, yes, we're gonna everybody who's on the outside of Israel as we're, we're like. Because they've got to have this sense that they, that that like he is doing a wider work. Yes, yes. You wouldn't do an offside entire inside and otherwise. No, that's the thing, and that's why Jesus. There, there's more than meets the eye to even what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Because you're like, well, you just said that, but you're entire inside, right? <laughs> right? So you're obvious. There's, and I'm not saying Jesus is just inverting or lying somehow, but there's more to it. So that's what. I'm, I've been unpacking. Right, slowly. I think it's 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 there's there's a personal and an eschatological expression yes. about this that is is blended in the same way that poetry strikes more than one note. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Wow, thank you for joining us, everybody. <sighs> that was this one. Is, this one has more food for thought than more less answers and more questions. But I, I think see what you mean, but I think they're better questions. They are better questions. So. Anyway, chew on that. Don't fake <laughs> we'll be back next week. Yeah, don't fake the funk Never. when you're going up for a mean dunk. <laughs> well said. Okay. All right, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.